One of the life skills that I'm sure you've thought a little bit about is the whole concept of judging other people. There's a lot of discussion even outside the church about judgment, like when is it appropriate to judge? When is it not appropriate to judge? I think most of us as Christians would probably already know this, and that is that we are permitted to judge action. So if a person is living in sin, they're, they're lying, they're stealing, they're, they're murdering, they're gossiping, whatever it might be, we can say definitively that is wrong. We, we can judge sin because the word of God judges it for us. It tells us what, what is right and wrong. But sometimes it might be tempting to judge people's motives. And while it is a good thing, good idea to try to discern at times why people are doing what they're doing or not doing what they're supposed to be doing, we have to be very careful in the area of judging motives. 99.9% of the time, we should, in fact, just avoid it. Look at people, take them for their word, look at their actions, determine whether their actions are right and wrong, but don't spend a lot of time assuming you know how people think or why they're doing what they're doing. So judging motives is is out of bounds when it comes to our relationships with others. And I'm sure you, you already know that as a Christian. But while we should be careful judging other people's motive, not to judge other people's motives, I think it's a wise thing for us to regularly assess our own. Would you agree with me on that? Regularly assess our own, because even in ministry, even in our walk with the Lord, it may be possible that at times we engage in certain activities or look for certain opportunities and we're not necessarily properly motivated by it. And we may actually be guilty of a sin. So as we enter back into the book of Acts, and you'll know that this whole, the whole purpose of this series is not just to give you more information about what life was like in the first century church, but to compare and contrast the church then, the church now, to learn lessons for the church collectively, to learn lessons for our own individual lives that we can put into practice. So as we get back into the book of Acts, what we're going to see here is a man that was not properly motivated. He'd come to faith in Jesus Christ. He'd made a profession of faith, but he was not properly motivated. And because of his sinister intention, he had to be confronted So that's going to be part A. Part B is we encounter another man that came to faith in Jesus Christ that demonstrates a whole lot of humility and grace and willingness to obey God. So there's a bit of a comparison and contrast going on here in this text. And one of the big ideas I think that flow from this text is is that this biblical passage shows us that motives matter. So that's part of the equation. And that maturity takes time. We don't mature overnight. Sometimes we need to be confronted. Sometimes we need to be called out by uh, an older believer. So as the church grew in the book of Acts, some unconventional people, some unexpected people start to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So early in the Acts, it's like 3,000 were added to the numbers that day. So it's just this broad declaration that large crowds of people were were added to the church of Jesus Christ. But throughout the book, we also encounter, encounter individuals that are exposed to the gospel, and we can learn some more pointed lessons from their lives. Not all of these people experienced rapid or immediate reform from their previously sinful motives. 
Not all of them were especially mature. Perhaps you can relate to that. Maturity takes a while. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you may experience a lot of reform in your life, but true maturity, just t- it takes a while to develop. And this is why I often say to young Christians, endure, persevere, don't throw in the towel, don't give up too quickly. I have noticed anecdotally that around the three-year mark, many new Christians start to really struggle in their faith. And if they endure and push through that, they often find themselves in a heightened, a heightened place of maturity in Christ. But those first few years can be, can be kind of vulnerable. And one of the ways that we mitigate against succumbing to our own vulnerabilities is we assess ourselves. We ask questions like, why did I say that? Why is it that I want to serve in that area? Why do I think, feel, and act the way I do, in other words? So be, be ruthless in assessing your own motives and ask God to uncover any sin that may be present in your life. So here's the, the first account, as I've already mentioned, uh, and it pertains to a man that made a profession of faith but is, but is ill-motivated. So here we have Acts chapter 8. I'll start reading for you in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. You don't need a PhD in biblical exegesis to understand that this is not a good person at this point. This kind of black magic that he was participating in was evil. He was seeking to draw attention to himself. Conclusion, not good. This guy needs help. Then it goes on to say, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So he had a following saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So not only was he self-deceived and a deceiver, but he had deceived the vast majority of people in his community. So he was a man of influence. He was a man of power. He was a man that was used to being listened to. And he was a man that was even used to being worshipped in a certain way. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So in contrast to listening to this false teacher, suddenly there's mass conversions to Christ. And listen to this. This is amazing. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing signs and great wonders performed. He was amazed. So this is a bad news story that becomes a good news story. This is a sinful man who had deceived many people, surrendering himself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here we have another Simon that we encounter in the Bible. So, so that we're not confused, you need to understand there are many different Simons or Simeons in the Bible. Up to 13 of them exist. You may know Simon Peter. You may recognize the name Simon of Cyrene. Uh, in the following chapter, you're going to meet a man by the name of Simon the Tanner. This is a different Simon. This is Simon Magus or Simon the Magician, the former sorcerer. And the amazing thing is, is that his life serves to remind us that Jesus Christ's gospel can affect 
all kinds of people. Jesus called fishermen to himself, like Peter. Jesus called physicians to himself, like Luke. Jesus Jesus called magicians to himself, like Simon. So the gospel has this expansive capacity to save all sorts of people. Now, whether he was a genuine, bona fide, born-again Christian or not is not for us to judge. There is dispute among students of the Bible, Bible teachers, as to whether he was a bona fide, long-term convert in the Lord Jesus Christ. There actually are some documents that exist outside of the New Testament in the first and second century, written by various early church fathers and other leaders, that suggest that there was a Simon, may have been this man, that became one of the key leaders in the heretical Gnostic sect of Christianity. So it's possible that he made an initial profession and then the wheels sort of fell off the cart and he reneged and he became one of the greatest adversaries against the apostles because there was some man, we don't know if it's this Simon or another Simon, because there's many Simons existing at the time, that became a real antagonist against the apostle Peter at a later date. So we cannot be dogmatic about this. But just looking at his, the narrative as, as it is presented to us in the book of, of Acts, he was a magician and now he believed and he was baptized. So for all intents and purposes, he's, he's a Christian. His life prior to Christ though reminds us of something that I think the modern church might want to be reminded of. Okay. You ready for this? Not all signs and wonders and miracles are from God. I hope we all understand that. Not all signs, not all wonders, not all miracles, not all spectacular displays are from God. Sometimes God permits evil people to wow and woo the crowds with their powers, with their abilities, evidently satanically inspired as part of the great delusion that often settles upon unregenerate people. How do we determine the difference? Well, true signs and wonders give exclusive glory to God. False signs and wonders give glory and honor to the performer of those signs and wonders. Simon did some amazing things over the course of several years. We're not just talking about pulling rabbits out of top hats. Did some amazing things. And people venerated him for it. People deified him for it. So that's one of the little clues that we can you know, keep in our theological memory banks when someone claims to be a performer of signs and wonders. Well, who's getting the glory for those signs and wonders. We need to make sure that it is God. Simon himself, prior to his conversion, was complicit in feeding the lie. The text says, saying that he himself was somebody great. That's the kind of person to mark and avoid. The narrative goes on to say, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, so notice the two location names. Geography is important. You should be growing in your understanding of biblical geography because it actually matters to the message. So Jerusalem 
is the location of Pentecost. It's the Jewish capital politically, and it's the Jewish capital spiritually. This is where the true followers of God went to worship the King of Kings. What is Samaria in contrast to Jerusalem? That place up north that is marked by compromise, sort of an admixture of Gentile peoples and Jews. Sometimes they get their religion sort of right. Sometimes they get it sort of wrong. It's a place with a lot of question marks attached to it. It's a place where you never really know if the religion is pure and undefiled or, or corrupt and deceptive. So this is why we need to keep this in mind. There's no throwaway words in the Bible. The locations are important to the overall message of the text, which we will get to. So the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Well, that's a good thing. The compromisers were starting to be converted. So they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Remember Pentecost? The Holy Spirit had descended at Pentecost, and everyone who was there, who was a believer, received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God for the first time in history. And now the word of God is being preached to the north, so they go up there that they also might receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible says here in verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which isn't bad, but it was insufficient. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now we know that they were believe, there were believers in Jesus before Pentecost. We know that. Peter, <laughs> James, John. So prior to Pentecost, it was possible to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, for a very brief period of time without being indwelt with the Spirit of God. But from Pentecost onward, this becomes normative. So that when a believer in Jesus Christ comes to faith, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches us this in 1 Corinthians, for we were all once baptized in the Holy Spirit. But here we have this transitional period where the Spirit of God had been poured out in the spiritual capital in Jerusalem. But now the outback, Samaria, was starting to see mass conversions. So the apostles go up there, understanding that not every Christian was affected on the same day in these early transitional years. And as people became followers of Jesus Christ, many of them received the Holy Spirit as a subsequent event through the direct laying on of hands of God's choice men, the apostolic leaders. And the means of bestowal was very personal. Now, I know in English, when we say, don't lay your hands on someone, that can have a negative connotation to it. It can mean you're assaulting someone. This guy laid his hands on me. But normally when we think of someone putting their hand on us, we think of that as affirmation, loving, affirmative, positive. When you hug someone, when you shake someone's hand, when you put your arm around their shoulder, these are signs of affirmation and approval. And it's an amazing thing that God uses these very Jewish apostles to head up into an area that in their Jewishness, they would have been raised to disdain. 
And he uses them to bestow the Holy Spirit upon these Samaritans through a very personal and intimate act. And the purpose for this is to demonstrate to the Samaritans the inclusive nature of the gospel and to remind the Jews, the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, that all people can become recipients of the fullness of the Christian life, which includes life in and with the Holy Spirit of God. In this respect, the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly an inclusive gospel. Now, you'll know that in our society, the word inclusive comes up a lot. Have you heard that this week a few times? We want to be inclusive. We believe in an inclusive community. But we know what that actually means. We can spot the lie. Because in the, in the Canadian vernacular, what inclusive actually means is to affirm evil to the exclusion of righteousness. Am I correct or incorrect? That's what it means in the Canadian vernacular, in the common language of the people. To be inclusive is to affirm evil and to exclude righteousness. That's why our city hall has absolutely no problem flying the sodomite flag. But they will not fly the Christian flag. Because it's not about inclusion, it's about affirming evil. That's what it's about. And this is not a new play. This kind of stuff has been going on since the beginning of time. But in the gospel, we have true, pure, righteous inclusion. The gospel message tells us that no one, not a single person, not me, not you, not your best friend, not your granny who appears to have never sinned, is actually righteous in the eyes of God, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But the good news is, is that people from all backgrounds can be saved through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, including those you wouldn't expect. Like people who presided at the public execution of Christians, Saul, soon to be known as Paul, like a magician, like an Ethiopian eunuch, and on and on and on and on. Now, you may find that to be normal in the moment because most of us have grown up in churches where we come in and we see people of different cultural backgrounds, different ages, different skin tones. We're, we're kind of used to that, especially in Canada, which is pretty multi-ethnic. But for the first century Jewish Christian, this was radical. Are you telling me that God is saving Samaritans? Are you kidding me? And the answer to that is yes, God was in the business of saving Samaritans, and it was radical. Now, unfortunately, not, not every convert, in fact, none, to be more precise, immediately matures, and many lack understanding. So as, as with many today, and we're not opposed to signs and wonders and miracles, if God wants to do signs and wonders and miracles, that's his sovereign prerogative. But as with many today in the broader Christian church, they tend to fixate on signs and wonders. It's like the only thing they really care about. It's, it's the only fruit they look for to determine whether God is present or not in a community of faith. 
And they're not always discriminate in terms of just determining, like, are these genuine signs and wonders? Or could they possibly be deceptive signs and wonders? And as with many today who fix on these signs and wonders in the supposed work of the Holy Spirit, Simon, this, this new convert, suddenly demonstrates like a fatal flaw in his life. His, his sole concern is with gaining the power to perform miracles. In other words, he kind of wants his old job back with Jesus attached. And get this, he's willing to pay for it. He's willing to pay for it. Look what the Bible says. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, God can perform miracles if he so chooses, and I'm sure many of you can point to things in your life and experience that are indicative of God's wonder-working power in your life. Even your conversion, by the way, is a miracle, so we've all experienced at least one. But know this. Some miracle workers are frauds. Know this. Some are in it for themselves. Know this. Some are willing to pay for it. Just know that. So a little bit of healthy skepticism isn't unchristian or unloving. It's reflective of biblical wisdom. On the other hand, a mature believer is motivated by humility, a desire to be useful to the Lord and as he sees fit to be used for his honor alone. So whether you die in obscurity or someone writes a book about you, it doesn't really matter. As long as you have faithfully served the Lord. So how does Peter respond? Keep in mind that Peter's had some failings in his own life. But his failings don't exclude him from engaging in this disciplinary rebuke in confronting sin, in confronting it boldly. Peter said to him, listen to the bluntness and boldness and potentially offensive nature of his response. So this is going to kind of rattle your cage if you're a real Canadian who likes to be polite and kind and nice and feels kind of uncomfortable with raising your voice or getting kind of blunt with people. Listen listen to Peter's words. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. That's the confrontation. Here's the solution. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's offensive. He says it, presumably in public. I I doubt he took him aside into a, a private room. The sin was public. The rebuke, therefore, was public. And the lesson we learn here, brothers and sisters, is that blatant sin requires bold confrontation. Blatant sin requires bold confrontation. Sometimes sins aren't so blatant and we have the opportunity to circle in on someone, to sit down, to sort of unpack our concerns, to 
be gentle with them because you know they, they may just be kind of living with a certain measure of ignorance. The sin is perhaps a little more subtle, but this sin required bold confrontation. And Simon Peter would have understood that his declaration would have also had potentially catastrophic effects on the people that used to follow him. See that? By the way, this sin, there's a sin that's rarely talked about, but it's called the sin of simonry. Now, this is not to say that all Simons are bad people. I have one of my own. And there's a, several other Simons in the word of God that are outstanding godly men, including the man doing the, the confronting here. But the sin of simonry is the sin of trying to buy or purchase a church office or church influence with your money. It was a major problem in the medieval church when the church and state were inextricably linked and people were buying bishoprics or buying priestly offices or trying to buy the office of the cardinal in order to expand their wealth. It was condemned as a damnable sin by many even in the medieval church. And I think it's a rarity today to hear of someone that's trying to buy their way into the pastoral office. Most people are trying to get out of it, <laughs> find a job elsewhere. But there are some, even in the modern church, that try to put on a bit of a show, I think, in order to elevate themselves in the community of faith. You know, I'm a big giver. Why, why have I not been a asked to sit on the church board. Oh, this guy pastors a giant church. Let's make him the leader of our denomination, regardless of whether or not he walks with Christ. We still see that kind of stuff, a similar kind of principle. The sin of simonry is to be rebuked, not only in the first century church, but also in the present. Here we have Simon Peter rebuking Simon Magus for his sin. And the principle we can extract is this, that we should let the severity of the offense be reflected in the severity of the rebuke. Now, now fortunately for Simon Magus, instead of running away, as many people do when they're confronted by their Christians, well, I'm leaving the church. I don't like what that person said. They're being judgmental. Instead of making excuses, instead of going to his former Disciples and saying, do you see how they're treating me? And trying to solicit sympathy to buttress his sin. Fortunately for Simon Magus, he immediately is terrified by the rebuke and humbly requests for fear of judgment that he'd be forgiven. Verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said would come upon me. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Hopefully it's stuck. Now, as a result, God bears through fruit through the ministry. Verse 25 teaches us, now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans, which is a region, not a city, but a, a region. So it's a good thing. We have a man does a major nosedive, fails dramatically, is confronted, asks for forgiveness, and the gospel continues on. 
But let us be reminded that it's necessary for us if we're gonna be an actual biblical Christian church to engage in church discipline, to rebuke and to confront one another. And can I just say this? If you are the one that is the subject or object of the confrontation, let your guard down, hear your spiritual leaders out, have the conversation, don't immediately resort to, resort to threats, running, hiding, pretending, trying to gather people to your team. Just be humble. Just be humble and allow the processes of those that love you in the church to play themselves out for your own benefit and to the glory of God. And then we have a contrast. So we've, we've met Simon Magus. And now we have a man who is also a new convert or will be a new convert very shortly. And, and he just demonstrates a certain level of maturity and fruitfulness that I think is a blessing for us to observe. So maturity matters and bears much fruit. So we've already met Philip. He was one of the seven godly men commissioned to feed the poor early on in, earlier on in the book of Acts. And he's also preaching like Stephen did. Stephen was put to death for his preaching. Philip is out preaching. Philip is clearly a man who's directed by the Spirit of God. And we pick up on a narrative pertaining to him and another fellow that he meets in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So very specifically, this is the path I want you to follow. This is a desert place, it says. And he rose and went. It wasn't like Jonah. Well, I don't like that assignment. Can't you give me another one? No, he, he gets up and he goes. And it says there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandake. Now, by the way, the, the word Kandake, not Candace, not Candace, it's pronounced Kandake here, is a title. It's a title given to what we would call the queen mother. And the reason why the queen mother was the one involved in sending someone to deal with matters pertaining to the public treasury is because in the Ethiopian culture, the king was considered divine. He didn't participate in lowly things like public state economics, uh, taxation, so typically what would happen is there would be a man that would serve as the king of the Ethiopians and the queen mother, the Kandake, not her first name, but her title, would be overseeing the affairs of the kingdom. So the Kandake evidently has a treasurer at her disposal and he's identified in the text as a eunuch. So she's the, the queen of the Ethiopians. And it says, who was in charge of all her treasure. So this means, this is a significant technocrat in the Ethiopian government. This is a guy who's, he's the head honcho when it comes to public finances. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, meaning that he was a righteous Gentile. We see that throughout even the Old Testament era. Every once in a while, there's someone from outside of the, the, the line of Abraham that is a worshiper of the true and living God. So he'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, lest you bl blame him or accuse him of texting while driving. 
someone else would have been ferrying him across the country. So he's sitting in his chariot, he has opportunity to read, and he has a copy of Isaiah's scroll. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Notice how much Philip is just being directed by the spirit of God. God says, go, he goes. God says, go down there, he goes down there. He's not trying to manipulate God or get God to provide him with favors. He's just, he's just open, he's humble. He's usable and useful to the Lord. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Which by the way, for those of you that, that may have grown up in churches where I just, I'm just led by the Holy Spirit of God. Yeah, no. The Bible does appoint people to be teachers and preachers and evangelists. And while we should all be students of the word of God, we also believe that in the sovereign providence of God, he appoints people to explain to us things that we other might, otherwise may not see or fully understand. So he, he understands this. Philip, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And it says there that now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. So it tells us what part of Isaiah's scroll he's actually in. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So we don't know everything that he said, but he he extrapolated and exposited the word of God. He helped them to understand God's redemptive history and pointed it all forward to Jesus Christ. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What pre prevents me from being baptized? Which is super cool. Because most people get baptized because the pastor tells them they have to get baptized. Or it's been announced over and over again. Or when they get around to it or in their schedule suits, but this man is so humble and so willing. It's like the spirit of God just impresses upon him. That's the next logical step. So there's no indication here that Philip told him that that was necessary. Just he understands. Okay, I believe. Next step. Oh, I go to a 15-week discipleship class. No. Well, I got to prove myself in the church for several months to make sure it's real. No, he's like, I might as well get baptized. Can I get baptized? Let's do it. So he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. Now there's some disputes, you know, if you've studied baptismal theology or whether they were up to the waist and poured from the head down or whether it was a back dunk or a front dunk, but clearly it was some sort of immersive act. So they go down into the water as a believer, not as an infant, but as a believer. We teach believer's baptism into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of God, this is crazy stuff, carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> That's called a miracle. It's unusual. But Philip found himself in Azotus, which we would call Ashdod, a, a Phil, an ancient Philistine community on the coast next to the Mediterranean Sea. That was his next assignment. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, which is in the north. There's two Caesareas, Caesarea and Caesarea Philippi. 
So he goes up and preaches the gospel there as well. And we just have that, that indication, wow, God's gospel really is expanding. I mean, it's, it's up in Samaria. It's impacting a guy who's going down to Ethiopia. It's over to Philistine territory. And then it's coming back up to Caesarea. I mean, it's really rapidly expanding and all sorts of unusual characters are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. As we look at Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch, there's a few notable observations. Number one, Philip was a willing evangelist. Here's a question, are you? Are you sensitive to God's leading and movement in your life? To preach the gospel, to meet with those that may be curious, those whose hearts God is working in, to fan the flame, to bring their interest into a full knowledge of God. We should all be willing. And not just to interact with those that look like us, act like us, are of our ethnic background, we're comfortable with, but people outside of our circle of influence. What connection did Philip have with the guy that lived in a completely different country from a completely different walk of life? None but he crosses those cultural barriers, which so often hinder us from interacting with people outside of our own spheres of influence. And he preaches the gospel and God uses him to bear fruit. It's an amazing story. Secondly, God is working in this man's heart before Philip shows up, which I find to be really encouraging because it reminds us our job is to preach, to teach, to explain the gospel. It's not to bring about conversions. You can't manipulate people, talk people into the faith. God uses us. We are his instruments. But God is the one that brings about the conversion. Isn't that a, a relief? <laughs> we can pray for, we can seek to be a good testimony before others. But ultimately, God is the one that brings people into himself, onto himself. This aligns with the idea in the Gospels. The fields are ripe unto harvest. Go into the fields and preach the gospel. We're to go out and preach the gospel. We're responsible for that. We're not responsible for the outcome. The, the, the person that he encounters also is an interesting man. I, I want to comment on this a little bit. So we've already identified him as a treasurer, the chief accountant to the royal family in Ethiopia. He was also a eunuch. Do you know what a eunuch is? A eunuch is a man who has undergone castration. Do you know what castration is? If you're young, ask your mom or dad this afternoon. Okay. Certain parts are removed. And the reason why the royal families often perform this act on some of their chief officials is they wanted to guard the king's harem. They wanted to guard the king's daughters. They wanted to guard the royal females, the noble families from the potential of being impregnated by someone who had regular access and interaction with them. In order, in order to guard the hereditary monarchy of Ethiopia, this man had some parts removed in order to make sure he would not impregnate any of those women. Now you might think, why do I need to know this? 
Very important, actually, why you need to know this. It's notable because under the laws of Deuteronomy, eunuchs, people with damage to their genitals, were excluded from full participation in the sacrificial system. It also says, however, in Isaiah, the very scroll that the eunuch was reading from, that there were changes that were about to come. So he finds himself reading from Isaiah, but here's what Isaiah also said under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in Isaiah chapter 56. So check this out. Again, to illustrate the expansive, inclusive nature of the gospel, out of all things, out of all the promises of God, did you know that God actually provides a promise to eunuchs? That he takes an interest in them? That their previous exclusion that they receive from full participation in the sacrificial system would be removed under the new covenant that God would bring about through his choice suffering servant, the Messiah? Here's what it says in Isaiah 56, verses 3, 4, and 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not, listen to the language, be cut off. That's an amazing passage of scripture. Because under the old covenant, one of God's choice covenantal blessings was physical offspring. We know about that. The seed promise from Abraham onward, which was always being tested and tried. The seed promise. This is how God manifests his blessing. Children, more children, fertility. It's like, well, what about me? I'm not a son of Abraham. I'm a eunuch. What possible blessing could I ever expect to receive from God? And in the exact same book, just a few chapters later, this is the promise that is given to the foreigner and to the eunuch. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's a wonderful reminder of the expansive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have committed some horrendous sins in your past. You may not come, as most of us don't, from the line of Abraham. You may, under previous covenants, have had some stipulations placed upon you which would exclude you from full participation in the covenantal blessings of God. But not anymore. Not anymore. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins and become a full participant in the blessings of God, both in the here and now and in the future to come. And that's a wonderful message. And it's one that we not only find great joy in, but it's also one we need to preach to the nations around us. God is still willing to use useful servants for his honor and for his glory. Unlike Simon Magus, who initially didn't seem to get this fully and was attracted to the powers potentially given to him through the 
gospel, this, this man's first concern, the eunuch's first concern was simple obedience. I, I, just, I just want to be obedient. I just want to be baptized. I just want to identify as a follower of God. May we each align our motives with those of the eunuch. Curious, humble, obedient, willing to obey the Lord. And may we cast aside any inflated view of self that we may have. Be ruthless with those negative motives and ask that the Lord would give you those pure abiding motives, which will bring him much honor and glory. 